Apocalyptic eschatology provides the indispensable background for understanding Jesus and the New Testament. This fact presents itself prominently in what's called the Lucan Apocalypse, chapter 21 of Luke, where you find a key to Luke's understanding of God's purpose in history. Luke's whole two-volume treatise on Christianity focuses on the establishment of the Messianic Kingdom at the Parousia, Luke 21, verse 31. With Matthew and Mark, Luke expects the Kingdom to arrive only after a period of concentrated Messianic woes, what he calls birth pangs, announcing the dawn of a new age of history, which will be the restoration or apocatastasis of all things. Acts 3 verse 21. It is to be the restoration so graphically described by all the Old Testament prophets. Acts 3.21, restoration. Luke's eschatology and Christology go hand in hand. Both are thoroughly Jewish, derived from the Old Testament and showing an affinity with the intertestamental apocalypses. But we should not think that they are less Christian because of their Jewish origins. Luke has set forth both his gospel and acts within a framework held together by the kingdom of God, both in its stage of preparation in the present age and in its manifestation at the future parousia. Jesus is the promised Messiah, destined at the future parousia to reign on David's throne. For that, please see Luke 1, verse 32 and 33, Luke 19, 11 to 17, Luke 22, verses 28 to 30, and again Acts 3.21. The Messiah's whole mission prior to his death was to herald or preach the kingdom by proclaiming it as good news. Luke 4 verse 43 gives us Jesus' specific purpose statement. The kingdom is anticipated in the present evil age by a demonstration of its power to overthrow the works of Satan. Luke 10 verses 9 and 11. Jesus is the promised liberator or king, the Lord Messiah of Psalm 110 verse 1 and of the 17th Psalm of Solomon, where we read, All will be saints and their king, the Lord Messiah. Compare that phrase, Lord Messiah, with Luke 2, 11. Jesus is destined to remain in heaven at the right hand of the Father, following his ascension, until the time comes for the great renovation of the world, foretold by all the prophets. It is not surprising, therefore, that Luke sees the Pauline Gospel as no different from that of Jesus. Paul preaches the kingdom of God everywhere. Acts 19 verse 8, Acts 20 verse 25, and Acts 28 verses 23 to 31. 
And Paul concludes his ministry where Jesus began and ended his by proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ to Jew and Gentile alike. This shows that Luke knew of no modern so-called dispensationalist distinction between a gospel of the kingdom for Jews only and a gospel of grace for the Gentiles. Luke recognizes one gospel only, which Paul preached for salvation to Jew and Gentile alike. Acts 28, verses 23 and 31. Much of this biblical material follows a typical Jewish apocalyptic pattern. The climax of God's purpose in history is reached when, amid scenes of cosmic disturbance, the advent of Jesus in power and glory marks the arrival of the long-expected kingdom of God. Luke says this, When you see all these things begin to take place, Straighten up and lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. When you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. That's Luke chapter 21, verses 28 and 31. The detailed account of the end given by Luke in chapter 21 is thus no appendage tagged on to the end of his presentation of Jesus' ministry. It is the indispensable denouement of the whole messianic story, the resolution of all the tension built up by the clash of Christianity with Satan's world. What then did Jesus forecast? What is it that Luke wishes us to understand? And what is his own special contribution to the apocalyptic material found also in Matthew 24 and Mark 13. The history of the exegesis of our passage in Luke 21 is plagued by much disagreement about the connection between the predicted desolation of Jerusalem, Luke 21 verse 20, and the end of the age marked by the arrival of the Son of Man in power and glory, in verse 27. Opinions are divided into four schools. Firstly, an application of Luke 21, verses 20 to 33, to the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70 only. Number two, an application to both AD 70 and the end understood as separated by a long span of time, though blended by the evangelist. Number three, an application to both events expected to be fulfilled within the generation living at the time of the prediction. And number four, an application to both events destined to occur in quick succession immediately before the parousia, or second coming. Our purpose is to show that the last of these four schemes is the only one which can reasonably be harmonized with the text, especially in the light of the clear connection of Luke's apocalypse 
both with its parallels in Matthew and Mark and with the critically important background material supplied by Daniel and other Old Testament prophets. School number one recognizes that the fall of Jerusalem is placed by Luke at the end of the age, but since it presupposes that Jesus must have been referring to the events of AD 70, it cannot allow a reference anywhere in the Apocalypse to events at least 1900 years later. School number two also sees the difficulty of separating the fall of Jerusalem from the end, but feels compelled to do so because it's thought that Jesus did refer to his return in glory and because the fall of Jerusalem is now past history. School number three maintains the close connection between the fall of Jerusalem and the end and is therefore forced to see all of our passage, including the reference to the parousia, as fulfilled in AD 70. And school number four allows for the obvious association of the fall of Jerusalem with the end of the age and concludes that Jesus must therefore have had in mind a fall of Jerusalem lying in the, to him, distant future and followed immediately by the parousia and the end of the age. A sound exegesis of Luke 21 verses 20 to 33, cannot afford to ignore the striking parallel between Luke's program for the end and that of Matthew 24 and Mark 13. There's a marked similarity of arrangement. We find following Jesus' departure, there will be false Christs, or perhaps false representatives of Christ. Matthew's egoimi o Christos, is the equivalent of Luke's ego imi, I am he. Since these false teachers come in Christ's name, it is possible that they are claiming to represent Jesus. False Christs are distinguished from false prophets in Matthew 24, verse 24. In Luke 21, we learn that there will be wars and persecutions. That's Luke 21, 8 to 19. A desolation or tribulation in connection with Jerusalem will demand an immediate flight by Christians in the vicinity of the capital. Luke 21 verses 20 to 24. Cosmic signs and the return of the Son of Man in glory will follow. It has been customary based on the unwarranted presupposition that Jesus cannot have had in mind the destruction of Jerusalem other than the one which occurred in AD 70, to say that the events of AD 70 and the end cannot be disentangled. Some of the events must be referred to AD 70, others must be a description of the end. Some might involve both AD 70 and the end. An equally unsatisfactory reading has necessitated finding a dividing point somewhere in the chapter to allow for the lapse of an unspecified amount of time. The facts are that neither in Luke 21 
nor in Mark 13 or Matthew 24, is there any hint of a gap which would accommodate a reference to events in AD 70 and the end of the age at least 1900 years later. Compare with that Desmond Ford's remark when he says it is evident that the disciples had in view a single event only of which the fall of Jerusalem was a significant part. That's from Desmond Ford's book, The Abomination of Desolation in Biblical Eschatology, written in 1979. We take as our starting point the similarity of framework found in the three synoptic apocalypses. The chronological connecting adverbs provided by Matthew and Mark are so clear that it is impossible to think of a huge gap between the appearance of the abomination of desolation in Matthew 24, verse 15, and Mark 13, verse 14, and the parousia. We emphasize the point by citing the remark of James Boswell in his commentary on Matthew, written in 1979. Referring to Matthew 24, verse 29, Boswell says the time expression immediately after represents a chronological transition so sharp and clear and forceful that to ignore it would be a major error in hermeneutics. Heinrich Meyer makes the same point. Meyer says, it is exegetically certain that Jesus spoke of the destruction of Jerusalem as an event that was to take place immediately before his second coming. The attempts to twist the word immediately in Matthew 24:29 from its proper meaning are inconsistent with the laws of purely objective exegesis. A whole host of strange and fanciful interpretations have been given in consequence of its having been assumed that Jesus could not possibly have intended to say that the second advent was to follow immediately upon the destruction of Jerusalem. This assumption, however, is contrary to all exegetical rule. The sequence in Mark's version is no less clear. He says that, and I quote, in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with power and great glory. Attempts to find a way of dividing the Jerusalem crisis from the end of the age simply cannot succeed. In Mark 13, some select verse 24 as the point of division. But it is obviously tied to the preceding verse. Others prefer verse 20, despite the obvious link with verse 19. Still others fix on verse 21, but only by ignoring the word then, which links the statement to the preceding and following passages. The majority settle for verse 19, 
despite the fact that those days connects the verse to the previous description. The single complex of events comprising an unparalleled time of distress, cosmic signs, and the ensuing parousia is found just as clearly in Luke 21, verses 20 to 27. Verse 20 foresees a surrounding of Jerusalem by armies as the trigger for those in Judea to flee to the mountains. There's an ultimacy about the terrible days which follow. They are days of vengeance in order that all things which are written may be fulfilled. That's in Luke 21, verse 22. Jerusalem's great distress will be caused by its mistreatment at the hands of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Luke's connection between verses 24 and verse 25 no more allows for a chasm of intervening time than does Matthew's immediately after or Mark's in those days after that tribulation. Luke simply links the tribulation with the heavenly signs and the parousia with the word and. Among recent German scholars, it's almost universally held that Luke has historicized Mark and made allowance for a time lag of great length between AD 70 and the end. But as has been seen from the simple connectives and, and, and then, there is no possibility of introducing an indefinite period of time. In Luke 21, Jerusalem's fall is still viewed eschatologically, though no less historical for that. Luke has maintained exactly the same pattern as Mark and Matthew, though he substituted the surrounding armies for the appearance of the abomination of desolation in the temple. Both Howard Marshall and E.E. E. Ellis agree that Luke has not historicized Mark, that's to say not made Mark apply everything to AD 70. Attempts to escape the dilemma presented by Luke 21 and parallels show the desperation of some commentators who are determined to find in the account an event in AD 70. Faced with the added difficulty that this generation will not pass until all these things take place, Dodd declares that, and I quote, when the profound realities underlying a situation are depicted in the dramatic form of historical prediction, the certainty and the inevitability of the spiritual process involved are expressed in terms of the immediate imminence of the event. Oskar Kuhlmann tried a similar solution. The essential element in the proximity of the kingdom is therefore not the final date, but the certainty that Christ's atoning work on the cross constitutes the decisive stage in the approach of the kingdom. 
that's from Kalman's The Essential Element. But such evasions of the chronological framework of the Lucan apocalypse are quite unsatisfactory. The severity of the problem is shown by Feuillet's exegetical wrestling. He says this, So we are reduced to these two alternatives. Either we must maintain that Jesus was wrong in making the two events coincide, or we must discover in his discourse evidence allowing us to distinguish the two events and thus to show that Jesus did not confuse them. But the efforts of commentators to show a break between the two events appear to be a lost cause. The documents reporting his discourse will not permit any clear distinction between the two events. That's from his Le Discours de Jésus sur la ruine du Temple d'après Marc 13 and Luke in the Revue Biblique of 1948. Fourier's difficulty is the result of two presuppositions, the second of which must be challenged. Firstly, Jesus and the disciples who questioned him closely associate the fall of Jerusalem with the parousia. Secondly, the fall of Jerusalem to which Jesus referred, or in the case of Mark and Matthew, the appearance of the abomination of desolation, occurred in AD 70. The conclusion based upon these premises must be that Jesus was mistaken about his return. The problem is only compounded by his assertion that all things would come to pass within a generation. Words which receive the strongest possible emphasis from Jesus when he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. That's Luke 21 verse 33. Since it cannot be argued that Luke makes room for any disassociation of the two crises, and since a mistaken judgment about the time of his second coming would render Jesus a false prophet, Desmond Ford maintains that the prediction was contingent upon certain events, just as Jonah's prediction of the fall of Nineveh depended on the continuing sin of the city. But this solution is original and yet hardly plausible. There's no hint in Luke 21 or parallels that the events foreseen may not happen under certain circumstances. The prophecy is a straightforward account and prediction of what surely must come to pass. There's another solution which resolves our problem with much less difficulty. Jesus and the disciples did indeed expect the parousia to occur immediately after an unprecedented period of misery in Jerusalem. The time of distress for Jerusalem
is not the one which occurred in AD 70, but one lying yet in the future, just before the second coming. This, after all, is what the Lucan Apocalypse describes. Luke says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is at hand. These are days of vengeance, in order that all things which are written may be fulfilled. Jerusalem will be trampled down until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled, and there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars, and upon earth dismay among nations. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift your heads because your redemption is drawing near. That's Luke chapter 21, verses 20, 22, 24, 25, 27, and 28. A number of features of this prophecy alert us to the fact that Jesus was not describing the crisis of AD 70. Firstly, the command to flee at the appearance of armies surrounding the city does not correspond to the flight of the believers in AD 70. Secondly, the days of distress are days in which all things which have been written are to be fulfilled. Luke has in mind the numerous passages in Old Testament prophecy which expect a final restoration of Israel after an immediately preceding time of trouble. Particularly significant are the links between Luke 21 and Isaiah and Daniel. The latter describes a crisis just preceding the day of the Lord, not one separated by centuries from it. Thirdly, the close parallels with Mark and Matthew require that Luke's chronological arrangement follow theirs. The appearance of the abomination in Mark is the well-known event of Daniel's apocalypse, on which all three synoptic apocalypses as well as that of 2 Thessalonians 2 and Revelation are based. Luke has chosen to depict the same critical event in terms more immediately understandable to his Gentile audience, but with the same awareness of Daniel. The original words of Jesus may have been approximately as follows. When you see Jerusalem encompassed with armies, then know that its desolation is at hand. When you see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place where it ought not to, let him that reads understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are in the midst of Jerusalem depart. It is quite certain that Jesus had in mind a complete picture of the events of the end drawn from Daniel, especially chapters 7 to 12. 
The final verses of Daniel 11 picture a diabolical tyrant extending his influence across the Middle East at the time of the end. Daniel 11, verses 35 and 40. His appearance culminates in a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. That's Daniel 12, verse 1. The resurrection of the dead follows immediately in Daniel 12, verse 2. The final trial of believers is given a quite specific time designation, a time, times, and half a time, or its approximate equivalent, 1260 days. From the appearance of the abomination until the end, exactly 1290 days will elapse. You'll find that in Daniel chapter 12, verse 7 and 11. And compare with that Daniel 7, verse 25. This material forms a coherent picture found again in 2 Thessalonians 2 and Revelation. The principal figure of the end time, the abomination of desolation, was so important that the Jews called the whole book of Daniel the desolating abomination, rather in the same way Genesis was named after its opening words in the beginning. Luke, as well as Mark and Matthew, has reported how Jesus elaborated the predictions of Daniel with its distinctive portrait of an evil person. Compare Mark's masculine participle modifying the neuter abomination in Mark 13, verse 14, the Greek participle estikota, modifying the neuter noun abomination. That evil person is seen attacking Jerusalem in a final attempt to eliminate the true believers. Luke's connections with Daniel are in some cases different from Mark's, though he shares Mark's reference to the time of great distress. Luke 21, verse 23, compared with Daniel 12, verse 1. He has in mind the Gentile king of Daniel 7, 25, who would, and I quote here from Daniel, wear out the saints of the Most High, and they shall be given into his hand until a time, times, and half a time. Compare with that Luke 21, 23, where we read of wrath to this people. The same eschatological tyrant of Daniel 8 was also in Luke's mind when he wrote of Jerusalem being trampled underfoot until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. In Daniel 8, verse 13, an angel asks how long shall the sanctuary and the host of heaven be trampled underfoot? After 2300 days, the sanctuary will be restored and 
it shall be for a time, times, and half a time. And when they have made an end of breaking in pieces the power of the holy people, all these things shall be finished. As we read in Daniel chapter 12, verse 7. The different time periods are perhaps to be accounted for by different end points or termini. One possibly at Christ's return, the other shortly after at the restoration of the temple. It is with good reason that Luke describes the fulfillment of all that is written because he draws from many different Old Testament eschatological pools of information. Ezekiel 30 verse 3 has not been overlooked. We read there the day of Yahweh is near. It shall be a time of the nations. The assembling of texts from the Old Testament suggests that Jesus and Luke read much of the prophet's message as a description of the times leading into the messianic kingdom. Compare with that 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 8, where Paul finds the Antichrist in the Assyrian of Isaiah chapter 11 verse 4. Luke has not omitted a widely circulated prophecy preserved in the book of Revelation, where John is commanded to measure the temple, but not the court, because it has been given unto the nations, and the holy city they will tread underfoot for 42 months. That's Revelation 11, verse 2. Further echoes of the Old Testament are heard in Luke's description of, as he says, the days of vengeance, in order that all things which are written may be fulfilled. That's verse 22 of Luke 21. One of these is the phrase in Daniel 8, verse 19, where an angel is about to describe what will happen at the final period of indignation, for it, as to say the vision, pertains to the time of the end. Then follows a description of the career of the end-time tyrant. A passage in Isaiah chapter 5 verse 30, describing the Assyrian invasion, which seems to be an eschatological event, as well as the episode in 701 BC. This seems to have supplied material for Luke's account of Jesus' words in Luke 21, verse 25, where he speaks of perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves, and it, the invading nation, shall growl over Israel in that day like the roaring of the sea, if one looks to the land, behold, there is darkness and distress. Even the light is darkened by the clouds. The roaring of the seas and the roaring of the waves pictures the tumult of the peoples. Compare with that Psalm 65 verse 7. And the darkening of the sun 
recalls the description of the day of the Lord and the fall of Babylon in Isaiah chapter 13, verse 10. If Luke, following the scheme found also in Mark and Matthew, places the fall of Jerusalem just before the second coming, what of the problematic generation in which all these things are to be completed? as in Luke 21, verse 32. Luke again parallels, marks what will be the sign when all these things will be completed, which is an echo of Daniel 12, verse 7. All these things will be completed. He records Jesus' solemn pronouncement. This generation will not pass away till all things take place. That's Luke 21, verse 32. A reasonable solution is that yenea here, the word generation, means not a period of 40 or 70 years, but rather age or longer period of time, inclusive of the evil society organized in its present form in opposition to God what Paul elsewhere calls the present evil age, as in Galatians 1, verse 4. The meaning of yenea goes back to the Septuagint, where it translates the Hebrew word dor, or age. Jesus contrasts the present generation with the time initiated by his return, Mark 8. 38, and Peter calls on Christians to save themselves from more than just the contemporary generation. Christians are to shine amidst a crooked generation or evil society, Philippians 2 verse 15. This solution is much more satisfactory than the so-called dispensationalist argument that Jesus meant the future generation which sees all these things rather than the one which heard him speak. Finally, it may be asked why it was that Jesus responded to a question about an existing temple, as in Luke 21, verse 6, by giving a description of the fall of Jerusalem beyond that of A.D. 70. The answer may be found in the peculiarly Hebrew way of incorporating the idea of two or more temples on the same site as one temple. Thus, in Haggai chapter 2, verse 3, we read, This temple, in its former glory, is a different building, and this house will be filled with glory, Although it will be a new building, the latter glory of this house is to be a brand new edifice, for the house in question has long been destroyed. Similarly, in the Lucan Apocalypse, it's possible for Jesus to refer to a destruction just prior to his future return. Our conclusion is that far fewer difficulties are encountered when we read the Lucan account of the end 
allowing its simple sequence to speak for itself, Luke evidently expected a final destruction and restoration of Jerusalem consequent upon the appearance of Jesus in his future kingdom. Luke 21, verse 31. To stretch out the apocalypse to include events in AD 70, as well as the parousia, involves, and I quote here, the skillful twistings and turnings which are more becoming to blacksmiths than to exegetes. Moreover, the source of the New Testament apocalypse is the Old Testament, especially Daniel, and we find there a well-defined complex of events dominated by a future Antichrist and a subsequent restoration in the future kingdom. The prophesied events encompass a period of a few years, not centuries. Luke and Jesus should be read in this light.